Good morning, Antioch. Uh, we are in a series called The Reformation, um, just sinking into a bit of church history and some of the key Protestant themes that came out of the Reformation period. Um, and we're on week, I think, four of five of these. So next week will be uh, Soli Deo Gloria, which is to God alone be the glory. Uh, today we're talking about Sola Fide, which is kind of faith alone. So I want to I ground us to begin with here um, back in kind of the time period of the Reformation because to understand how the church operated or how Christians even thought, you had to understand kind of the context of what it was like to live and to move. I miss the high school kids. Um, our high schoolers are at Seacrest, uh, all of them. So normally they're right here in front of me. I feel, I feel like I, I got this big empty high school space. So if you notice me positioning that way, it's because there's no high schoolers here. Um, it's, a, it's, I think, almost impossible for us to jump back into the late 1400s, the early 1500s, and just wrap our minds around the uncertainty or the fog that existed with regard to uh, life expectancy. Would this illness turn into death? Um, are my kids healthy? Um, will the plague come and get us again? The plague that came in the 1300s and wiped out one-third of Europe would come back and revisit every couple summers. It would it'd come back. If you were rich, you'd go into, your, into kind of your countryside villa and you'd just lock yourself up for a couple months. But these things kind of kept pulsating through all of Europe. So in England... Uh, at the time of the Reformation, the life expectancy was 38. Uh, I just turned 45 yesterday. Um, so, thank you. Um, so, a life expect expectancy of 38 is, in, is pretty short, and uh, a one-third, a whole one-third of all children would die before the age of 10. Um, so even Catherine of Aragon lost, I think, five of her six kids um, before they made it into adulthood. And so you have this kind of all-pervasive heaviness uh, of, of life and health and the reality of death. There's a lot of death going on all the time. You see it. You're at funerals. Um, you're, you're walking alongside loved ones as they're transitioning. And so this, this heaviness and this need for kind of a sense of confidence or surety in what is going on. And then when you add to that the whole idea of harvest failing and in this agricultural society that you're really being caught up, not just with your economics, but with your ability to feed your family, whether to starve or not, um, by what is happening just with the environment that you can't control. Um, now, when you go to church in this time period, you go to church and it is, it is done in this building, this very rich building that, that has been built over decades, that has existed maybe for hundreds of years, and you go into this cathedral or this church, and you go in oftentimes as an illiterate person, and you're learning from the stories of the stained glass windows, these biblical themes of comfort um, kind of encourage you into the New Testament world, and you hear performed in Latin 
this sacred magic ritual where the, the bread, uh, the host, is turned into the literal, the actual body of Christ, uh, as the Catholic Church believes with Eucharist. So the priest now is, is talking in a language, kind of chanting in a language you can't understand, and performing magic, a magic that allows you in some sense to come and connect uh, with God, that you're doing this with all the people in your town. Never was there 100% church attendance, but this is what everybody did, where they kind of centered. Your community was there, and as you're sitting there, this is kind of the stabilizing point, uh, the stabilizing point of not just your life, but your family's life and the community life. And the whole calendar of your year is now patterned around the church calendar, incorporating even old pagan dates into the church calendar so that everything is kind of normalized and you're going through that, journeying through that together. That this is kind of what's going on. And you are coming into it in a dependent, completely dependent, trusting position. There is a fog in some ways that you can't get on the other side of. That the priest mediates for you to God, that the church is what you connect to, and that connection ensures uh, your, your salvation, that somehow by just being there, you know that you're paid up, you know that you're current, that even the language of talking to God, you don't even know how to do that in your own language. And when you walk out of that place with kind of all of the finery, all of the art, all of the, the stained glass, all of the messages, you walk out into a secular or common world where you go back to your vo vocation and it has not much to do with faith because you've never actually read the Bible. Um, you've never seen it in your own language. The Latin language passed out the 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 vulgar Latin, the common Latin, the Latin that people would use, transitioned out over time uh, from about 600 to 800 AD. Uh, everyone talks about Latin as a dead language. Latin didn't die. It transitioned into the, roman uh, the romantic languages of Europe, and it happened around that period of time. And then the formal Latin or ecclesiastical Latin went all the way up until the 1800s, existing in areas of law or the church ecclesiastical forms, um, even government in some places, and then that kind of passed out. So you have interesting um, Latin kind of roots, but the point is in, in Luther's day, in the day of the Reformation, nobody spoke Latin, nobody understood Latin unless they were educated or in the church ranks. Does that make sense? Um, in fact, until the 1960s, the priest wouldn't even face you. The priest would have his back to you as he performed this ritual that set up Eucharist. The 1960s, Vatican II, we'll talk a little bit about later, able to actually face and engage, bringing the congregation kind of into this act. So as you're sitting there, everything about your reaching out to God is mediated by something. Does that make sense? Like you don't even have the knowledge, the biblical knowledge to understand what the word of God says about how you can relate to him, uh, to pray to him, be forgiven by him, that all of your reaching out or striving for confidence, for some kind of connection with the heavenly father, all of that is being mediated by someone or something else. And so when Luther comes along, um, we see that he kind of reacts to the church, gets excommunicated, is called to a council in 1521, is, is with kind of the holy 
Roman Empire, uh, Charles V, and they're basically trying to decide, are they going to act on this, this writ of excommunication by the Pope or not? And they bring in Luther, and they basically ask him to recant his writings. Luther refuses to recant his writings in what's kind of a famous phrase. He says, unless you prove to me by scripture or right reason um, that I am in error, then I cannot and will not change. Uh, Here I stand, I can do no other. Um, Kind of this famous church phrase down through the ages, here I stand, I can do no other. Well, he was whisked from there straight into hiding where nobody knew he really was and spent uh, the later part of 1521 there, and it was the Wartburg Castle. So let me show a little bit of this. Uh, The Wartburg Castle fascinating, um, beautiful castle that was built in different time periods. It's up on a a very high, rocky kind of uh, outcropping outside of the city of Eisenach. So it's a good 15 miles or so outside of Eisenach, uh, not Isengard. Um, Eisenach. Uh, Eisenach in, in Germany was where Bach was born. So if you go there now, you can go to the Bach Museum uh, or you can catch uh, a bus go up here and have to walk up the whole hillside. There's an interior view of that castle next. Luther would have been here during the winter, very cold, wet cold. Um, This would be kind of the interior village side of that castle. And then we can see Luther's rooms. These are still preserved today the way they were when Luther was there. That uh, green glass stove was for heating. Uh, That was the desk where Martin Luther translated from the Greek Uh, which was a groundbreaking thing. A lot of translations or some translations uh, like John Wycliffe and whatnot had been started from the Latin text, trying to translate it into a language, English in that case. This is Luther taking the the Greek uh, documents, um, the Greek that was the language the New Testament was written in, and for the first time translating it into German. So that's his desk. On the floor is the vertebrae of a whale. So it's a a whale vertebrae that was for like a footstool. Um, It's still there today if you go visit the Wartburg Castle. Uh, And the fascinating thing is Luther would would sneak out. Um, He didn't look the same, so we got a picture of Luther here. Um, If you ever see Luther with a beard, it's, it's kind of in this exile period. Um, that he grew out his beard, that he kind of spent the winter there, was miserable. A lot of his prayers and his kind of personal writings talk about his health, talk about his indigestion and, and bodily functions. Uh, he was free with his words, whether he was talking about church stuff or body stuff. Um, but a very difficult time. But he would sneak out and walk around the villages outside of the castle to listen to people. And he was just listening to to hear how are people expressing things, what is the German language that, that my countrymen um, speak that, that would be the language they would understand as I'm trying to take the biblical things and put it into the phrases that would reflect that best, right? So he would go out and walk around and come back and worked on this New Testament, and it was groundbreaking. Um, in Wittenberg now, we just came back, a group of us, if you remember, uh, I think I've got a picture of a Bible This is the full text of Luther's Bible. They also have just the New Testament, which would have been more appropriate for this sermon. Um, But as I went through my iPhone, I evidently didn't take a picture of the New Testament one. 
Um, this is the full Bible that came out a number of years later, but you get the idea. Luther comes out with the New Testament in German. It's groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking because now you have a text. Now your family has a text. Now you have a text that you can teach school children how to read and engage the higher things of God for themselves. And then even your church is coming together. And now your calendar isn't just around the dates of the Paschal, the, the, the kind of um, the passion or the Passover acting itself out um, into uh, the year, but your, your church is now coming around the text. And there are sermons that are teaching you the text. Um, before Gutenberg's Bible, if you, if you were lucky enough to have a Bible, it was a family Bible. It was in Latin. You couldn't read it anyways. It was incredibly expensive because it would take scribes years, even decades, to, depending on how fancy, to, to translate it all the way out, copy it all the way out, and then to go in and decorate it. And so if you had a family Bible, the purpose was more symbolic than anything else to record births and deaths and baptisms, but that's the function it played. This is the family record place. Luther's New Testament all of a sudden gave you a book that was the words of God, Scripture, that's going to come down to you and tell you what the, the, the dictates of our faith are. So this is an incredibly important part because it takes away, for the first time, the fog of confusion on a lot of things. So while Luther is at the Wartburg Castle, a peasant's war breaks out. The peasants in an uprising with pitchforks and wooden, wooden things going against kind of the more professional armies of what would be referred to as the princes and coming into this clash. And at the heart of it is economics, but more than that or deeper than that, at the heart of it is abuse. That the peasants now are either reading for themselves or having someone that knows how to read telling them that they have direct access to God, that the people in authority over them are put there to shepherd them, that they, they, they shouldn't be abusing that power and taking spiritual offices to themselves, offices in the church that give them a measure of control. In fact, there should be no such thing as the office that all of the believers in some sense are the family of God, the priesthood of believers. And, and you have this reaction that says, we have been kept from access to God, this, this kind of fog that we didn't know how to get past, and now we're, we're taking God's words and we're angry that you have been a part of an abusive system against us. And that fuels that religious kind of frustration along with the economic problems, fuels this peasant's war. It's what eventually brings uh, Luther out of hiding and he hated the chaos and just wanted to go back to stability and order and to do more slow or proximate solutions to try and fix these things. But so you see this interesting thing kind of cropping up, this idea of access to God and who owns the access to God that we have. Who's standing in that spot that is shaping my understanding of how I'm going to come to God? Uh, I went to a church in, in high school uh, in Northern Virginia. I, when I got my driver's license, started going less. When I went to college, I didn't go at all. Um, it was part of my falling away from, from church. And then about four years later after that, I had a, a pretty radical, what I would call conversion experience, and going back into the heart of faith or Christianity. 
But when I was a freshman, I remember on a Tuesday, I remember my mom still calling me and saying, hey, you know, that pastor of the church that my parents were still going to, um, he, uh, he's, he's been having an affair. In fact, he took his wife's inheritance money, went to Atlantic City and actually lost a vast amount of it. Um, and now has is, moved out with the person he was having an affair with. Um, my sister was the same age as one of their kids. It messed her up, and it messed me up. And I wasn't even practicing my faith at the time. But I had this idea that, that pastors were these priests that stood between me and God or us and God, and somehow they were the connection point, and we were sub, uh, supposed to submit to them, or they lived such holy lives that they earned the right to kind of represent all of us and mediate our faith or our practice to God. Does that make sense? And that, that Tuesday when my mom called, um, even though in some ways I had disconnected so far already, um, that was the last straw in me just giving myself wholly to the outside the church world rather than kind of straddling this fence of I have this worldview that, that I grew up around that, that, that's still hanging in me, that makes me feel certain uh, ways about certain things. And I stepped on that Tuesday, I stepped out of that. Um, I know people in this town that have had a similar experience with a church leader falling and what that did to their understanding of, of their connection with God. Um, taking what was already fuzzy or already um, kind of foggy or unclear and making it even worse. We, we live in this strange place with this question of who are we going to let stand in that and should they even be standing there? Um, there are eight different things that you can tag as being different between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, and I don't know that we've fully gotten into this that much, and I think it's really helpful. Um, but here, the eight areas, if you really want to talk about tension point um, with Protestant and Catholic, and the first one's the understanding of the Bible. For the Protestant Church um, coming out of the Reformation, Scripture alone, uh, and Pete talked about this a number of weeks ago, that this is what would be called the rule of faith or the canon, that this is what we measure everything else by. Um, not that the Bible is a recipe book for everything that we're going to face in life, but the principles set in here are, are supposed to inform and guide our practice and that this becomes how we determine what right doctrine is or isn't. For the Catholic Church, they would lean very heavy also on church tradition. And so what different popes or ecumenical councils uh, or things have transpired over hundreds of years to shape or inform or even replace aspects of Scripture, and that those two things now together form a body of belief uh, for the church. That's one of the differences. The understanding of the church, uh, the Catholic church, that word Catholic means universal. The view of the church for, for the Catholic church is that it's supposed to be all of the believers together. This idea of a split or people being outside of the church doesn't make sense to them. If you're not willing to stand in the church, even if you have disagreements, then you don't understand the church somehow because it's the universal church. And, and when you're connected to that, you're connected to the body of Christ. If you're not connected to that, you're not connected to the body of Christ. And how can you be saved? 
When we talk about church discipline in the Protestant church, it's kind of like you're being put out of fellowship so that um, you're alone and, and maybe in that time out, that's a horrible way of saying it, um, you're, you're realizing that you miss the fellowship of believers and that you would come back and, and return to fellowship, right? In the Catholic Church of Luther's day especially, it was a lot different. If you're, if you're excommunicated, you are cut off from the body of Christ. That the Pope has, in a very real sense, used the keys of the kingdom, St. Peter's keys, to lock the gate on you. You're not in the compound. You're not in the church. And so the church becomes, the way you're connected to the church, becomes uh, very deeply connected to your idea of salvation. You're going to go to heaven if you're in the church. If you're out of the church, you feel very insecure. It's very different in the Protestant church versus the Catholic church. And we have this flat hierarchy in the Protestant world that you can have all these different denominations, hundreds of them. And we disagree with each other, but we, we think they're all the church. Um, it, that's still the church, even though it's not my church. The Pope is a point of disagreement. The Pope and the Catholic church, obviously being a supreme authority, somebody that speaks for God, uh, somebody that holds the keys to the kingdom, somebody that is in this line of, of St. Peter, that is a massive kind of point of disconnect with the, the church. I don't know if I have a picture of a cross. I don't know if you've ever seen these um, word, um, word clouds. You ever seen those? You take a document and you put it through this algorithm and it, it takes what, what the most dominant words are in that document and then kind of represents them visually by size. This word cloud is of Luther's 95 um, theses. So the document nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, um, this, is, this is how you would visualize that document. And you can see God is the same size as money. Um, and you can see that, that love and one and souls are about the same size, maybe just a bit smaller than, than Christ, but massively overwhelmingly, the, the topic that shows up is the Pope, the papacy. So a massive disagreement on the Pope. Um, back to our list. Uh, understanding of the office, that's not just the Pope, but now it's bishops, it's priests. And the understanding for the Catholic Church is that, that God calls and commissions you, and you now have this spiritual um, power to, to intercede and mediate between people and God, much like the Old Testament office of priest, okay? If we were to go to the idea of the priest in the Old Testament, this is much more where the Catholic view comes in. And so the Catholic priest is going to do something that you can't do or I can't do, the forgiveness of sins, of of dedicating a baby, of performing last rites, of, of different kinds of things that, that mediate heaven to earth, that connect you to God, and that there's this office, this spiritual authority. And then, again, in the, in the Protestant church, that's the priesthood of believers. The Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, the difference here, the Catholic church saying that it's not that Jesus is, is really present here when we remember and, and follow him in obedience with the Lord's Supper. In the Catholic Church, the idea is that the actual substance becomes, becomes and is the body of Christ and, and the blood of Christ so that you are eating flesh even though what you're tasting is bread. Um, and that was a difference or a point of contention 
um, still is a significant one between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, the sacraments in general in the Protestant world, we have two that we really focus on, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, in the Catholic Church, I think there's upwards of seven. Uh, last rites, the sacrament of marriage, um, uh, others, like four more. Um, Marian dogmas, that's Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, but Marian dogmas, so, so, so thoughts or teachings related to Mary and the worship of the saints, very different between Catholic Church and Protestant Church. There, there are over 4,000 saints in the Catholic Church, and you can pray to them. Um, I ask you, this, this would be the Catholic view, I, I ask you to pray for me sometimes. Um, pray for me. I, I need it. Well, the Catholic Church would say, um, when really, really good, righteous people die, why can't we still ask them to intercede um, with God on our behalf? Why can't I just ask for prayer from those people as I do from you people? And it goes a little or, or varying degrees higher than that because you're also in some sense asking them to mediate grace to you. That out of their holiness, their righteous acts, that, that you would, would somehow by venerating them or praying to them be able to receive some of the blessing that they have because of their holiness. Um, but this is very different than the Protestant church. The Protestant church is you pray only to God. Only to God. Um, and you don't venerate dead people. And Mary uh, and, and the views of Hail Mary, kind of doing your Hail Marys and asking Mary to intercede on, on the behalf of the believer. By the way, that's a, those are doctrines that have grown up over time. So we're getting back to that church tradition thing again, right? Um, would not be held at all in the Protestant church. And then finally, celibacy in the Catholic church. This is a must for... Uh, the priests, that they be set aside and pure unto God. Um, in the Protestant tradition, that was completely abolished. It was, it was really addressed even as early as 1520, three years after the Reformation. And ultimately, Luther himself, we've talked about how he got married to Katerina von Bora. This is what Luther said, because he, he, he thought he wasn't going to do it for a while, and then he eventually did. And his reasons were, that his marriage would ple uh, please his father, that if he got married, it would rile the Pope. Um, there's such a petty strand between some of these reformers and the papacy, um, which is really funny to read. Like the, the invention of the printing press meant that you, you could kind of like fire off letters and have them travel further than what kind of people were used to, you know, that this was a, a new era. It's kind of like when you watch somebody first begin on social media, you know, and, and it's, really, it's really funny. It's like, that's not actually how you should talk when everybody's watching, you know. That was going on in the Reformation as well. Um, that Luther's marriage would please his father, rile the Pope, cause the angels to laugh. Uh, he had a a healthy self-view, and the devils to weep. And so um, he got married. So the interesting thing is that there's a lot of agreement um, in some ways between us and the Catholic Church. Um, a lot that changed at, after Luther's time. Do I have the pictures of the councils next? Or I might be jumping ahead on, on poor Kristen here. 
Uh, right after the Reformation, there was a church council. We're talking about like the Can Council of Nicaea that happened in the early 300s when everybody's getting together, spending multiple years trying to hammer out doctrine. The Council of Trent, which becomes known as the Counter-Reformation or the Punchback, they had wanted, the, the Pope had wanted um, for some of the reformers to be there so that it would be a church council. None of the reformers came, but in this council, they did several things. They, they codified what exactly is the Catholic Bible. This is the Catholic Bible because a lot of the Apocrypha was, was up for debate, um, books that, that weren't kind of landing anywhere. So they, they determined what their Bible actually was, what the canon was. They addressed some of the abuses of the Renaissance popes and the sale of indulgences and whatnot. After this point, there are no more Renaissance popes. So this dark chapter in the papacy kind of ends as the purity and the focus and the intentionality comes back into the Catholic Church. Um, and so even in the early days of the 1500s, middle of the 1500s, the Catholic Church is reforming itself and beginning to look less and less uh, in some ways than what it did during Luther's time. From this point on is also when we would talk about the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church becomes, from this point on, this kind of codified Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the next time they get together was in the, the 1960s. So from the Council of Trent all the way to Vatican II, what's called Vatican II because it was held in the Vatican. That's inside St. Peter's. You can even see uh, Bernini's kind of um, cover of the altar back there with the famous twirling um, bronze kind of um, whatever you call them, columns, twisty columns, um, twizzlers. Uh, but so this is Vatican II. So you went 400 years where the, the Latin language remained as the language of mass or the Eucharist or the, the church. Not until 1960s did it come back into or for the first time come into, no, we can do this in the vernacular of people, the common language. Uh, you also had an interesting thing that, that globalization has changed. But in America, you always had Catholic church and Protestant church in the same cities. In much of Europe, you had Catholic areas and you had Protestant areas. You had religious wars and powers that shaped this. And so for hundreds of years, you didn't actually hammer this stuff out with your neighbors you were talking about with your neighbors being a part of the same tradition and those people over there being radically different from you. And so you had this interesting tension that never quite existed uh, where we are um, and now just in this globalized world more and more brings dialogue and, and togetherness. And if we sl uh, show Vatican II one last time, the, the priority of Vatican II, one of the dominant priorities that was stated from the beginning was, was on church unity that they were going to come and address how to begin an ecumenical process where Christians around the world could be better in dialogue and understand one another. And so you have actually seen a lot of things change since then, a reconciliation uh, with the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church in, in different ways, um, and that you would have in America now, according to a Pew Research survey, that six in ten Protestants and two-thirds uh, or 66% of Catholics believe that the two Christian groups have more similarities 
than differences. We live in an age, especially with Pope Francis, where you see more and more of the commonalities coming together than the differences. Does that make sense? But to go back to highlight the differences, on that list I gave you, we can bold and italicize some of them um, and see what's really going on here. Um, that These, most of them, have to do with or speak heavily into this idea of access to God. Do you see that? That my understanding of the Bible is talking about my access to God or God's word or what God would say to me. My understanding of the church and being with other believers speaks to my understanding of where I am in fellowship or relationship to God. The papacy and am I under a, a, a St. Peter of sorts, understanding of the office. Am I a priest, the priesthood of believers? Are you a priest? Are we all in some ways coming together and witnessing to a world who and what Jesus is? Um, are we functioning in that way of kind of being light bearers and that we can go to people and say, here's how you can know God, or I'll help baptize you, or let me pray over your child, that we that comes from being in Christ, and that that then goes out into the world. Uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, how does this mediate or, or speak into my touch point with Christ? We're gonna do a series for Lent this year that's all about this idea of, can I actually touch Christ? 2,000 years later and, and in the fog of life, can I actually, are there ways I can reach out and actually touch, uh, touch Christ so that I can know Jesus? Or am I kind of going through the motions and going, I don't want to tell too many people this, but I don't know that I actually have a relationship with Jesus or that I feel that sense of closeness or that he loves me. And so we're going to be talking about that down the road. But we you know, continue the sacraments, the worship of the saints. These have to do with access to God. And so I want to talk about just access and, and roll through three different ways this expresses itself. And I alluded to the first, and it's um, the idea that faith alone, what we're talking about today, that faith alone is unmediated by priests. As a pastor, I can teach. As a pastor, I can hopefully set an example. As a pastor, um, I can grow together with you as we seek God, but never is your faith gonna be in me. Never should it be in me. I should be pointing people to Christ, that your faith is in Christ alone, and that if I or other people let you down, then that's simply the weakness of believers um, that, that we, we don't always live up to this performance standard that we would want to live up to, but that doesn't change the nature of my relationship with Christ, that it's unmediated by priests. Um, there's a quote here from Luther. Uh, Luther says this, I think this is an extreme version of it. He's famous for this one, but faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake uh, his life on it a thousand times. And I think that's the robust, um, energetic definition of faith, but I just wanna read a couple verses on faith from scripture. In Luke chapter seven, Jesus says to the woman, um, the sinful woman who had come to anoint his feet and prayed at his feet, wiped his feet with her hair. Remember this story? And all of the, the, the good Christians, so to speak, were looking at Jesus and looking at her and saying, surely he's gonna understand that this isn't okay. She, she doesn't measure up. 
She's not good enough. And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's fascinating. Um, Your faith makes you worthy. I accept you as you are with these people seeing you as having a bad reputation. I accept you there because of your faith. Crazy. Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, where is your faith? This question of what's going on with the life of faith in you, this muscle that, that we should be developing and growing. Other ways of talking about faith, Jesus is going on about our, our worry and how we shouldn't worry about tomorrow. And then he comes back at the end and says, if God is gonna, is gonna take care of the flowers of the field, how much more you, you of little faith, meaning the starting point isn't that we have faith that we would stake our life on a thousand times. The starting point is just the mere presence of faith. That when Jesus is is talking to us and working with us and discipling us, he's beginning with us at a place of very, very little faith, baby faith. If you're in this room and you have little faith, then that's a wonderful spot. Jesus actually wants to talk to you. And he would want to encourage you that that faith might grow. But the fact that it's there, Jesus talking about faith as small as a mustard seed. Jesus was always looking not for the size of your faith, but the mere presence that it existed. Just like when you're trying to start a fire, it's not there, it's not there until all of a sudden there's a little bit there and your whole attitude changes, doesn't it? Let me grab some of the pine needles. Let me breathe on this this little fire because that flame now grows quickly. But my attitude of this fire changes the minute I see that flame. Jesus wants the flame. Us of little faith. Us that might only have uh, faith as, as big as a mustard seed. And he wants to say, that's where I begin working with you, talking with you. And if you can come to me with that, that's even gonna be where you're worthy um, because my grace is gonna be sufficient for you. Um, the apostles praying to, to Jesus and saying, um, or beseeching him and saying, increase our faith. A big part of our prayer life isn't going to God and faking faith. Um, a big part of our prayer life should be praying, I don't, I don't know that my faith is big enough for this. I don't know that my circumstances and what I would need to walk through this, I don't, I don't know that I'm lined up for that, God. Yes, I want you to change my circumstances, but I also need you to grow my faith, to believe that you can get me through this, even if it's I'm, uh, I who am changing rather than the circumstances changing. Um, Habakkuk, did I read Habakkuk last week? Anyone here from last week? I don't think I did. But it's one of my favorite books, certainly in the Old Testament, and I just love the way it ends. So I come back to it a lot just with uh, regard to how this finishes off because it speaks so deeply, I think, to to faith. Um, Though the fig tree does not bud, tell me if you can't hear yourself in this. Your life right now, your trials right now, your feelings right now, your emotions, your struggle right now. Tell me if you can't hear yourself in this. But though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. For the sovereign Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, enabling me to tread on the heights. I don't know if you've ever been to Lake Billy Chinook. They have these, these mountain goats, right? Have you ever seen those on the side of the canyon? If you're, if you're going through Lake Billy Chinook, God takes and transforms us so that our feet become nimble and that we're able to navigate very, very difficult places. We often pray purposely, almost daily, that God would change our circumstances. A big part of our, our faith walk should be, God, grow my faith, that even though my circumstances don't change, that I would, I would have feet like the deer, and that it would be um, something that enables me to tread on the heights, to sustain through this season. Faith, um, it comes to us unmediated by priests. The second one, independent of power structures. The Catholic Church, um, the, the crowd, there's strength in numbers. We are a herd animal. I tell you, if you go to a Bible college or a seminary, you can watch this at work. If any of you have been, you know what I'm talking about. Calvinism is the, the strongest cool club I've ever seen. If you hang around Calvinists and you call yourself a Calvinist, you are in the club. And there's a degree of confidence that comes from being, I'm one of the elect, which is what you say when you're a Calvinist. I was chosen and if you're not a Calvinist too, well then, I don't know, maybe you weren't chosen. Um, and I'm sorry, but it's God that didn't choose you. It's not my doing. Um, I really don't know what to say, but I'm chosen. You know, like, it, it can go this crazy dysfunctional place. And so, not a, you know, some of you might have been Catholic or have Catholic relatives. I don't know that most of us in here are Catholic. But that idea of attaching to a power structure or to a cool kid club like, say, Calvinism. I'm talking about the unhealthy way. I don't care if you're a healthy Calvinist. Um, it, it, would, it would have to mean that you are in therapy. Um, it would have to mean that you are doing some other things. But if you're a healthy Calvinist, that's okay. But we're not saved and we don't have our relationship with God because we're a part of any of these groups. It's faith alone. Come to Christ alone, with faith alone, and then he gives us grace alone. Um, the other one here. Bunch of guys were together this Wednesday and we were talking about this one, but um, we don't come to Christ, we're not saved, we don't have a relationship with God because of our performance. So it's, unaccom it's unaccompanied by our performance. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, says Isaiah. That, that those don't count for anything. That when we come, we come as it were naked, and naked is uncomfortable. So the better we are, the more righteous we are, the longer I go as a pastor, the more good sermons I preach, I kind of start to think I'd rather come with a little bit of clothing. Like I've certainly done enough that I've got some good stuff that I don't have to feel super, super awkward coming to God, but, but we do, we come naked that none of our righteous deeds, that none of our works are gonna just kind of accommodate us into Jesus. It's not like 
uh, in the old aristocracy days, you bring somebody and you vouch for them, like, here's so-and-so, and they're, they're a cut above the rest, and they should get entree into our club, our private club, our exclusive club. And that's not the way it works. Now it works that, that Jesus says to God, here's my friend, here's this person that's in my body, that's, that's a part of this salvation, because they came to me by faith, and their faith is going to heal them. Their faith has saved them, that it's not their works, it's not their merits. And we have been raised in such a performance culture. Performance culture, whether it be our parents, whether it be society, whether it be the comparisons that we work out with our peers, but we grow up not feeling that we're ever good enough. And the minute we feel we're good enough, we feel like we're falling behind. Um, Pastors do this. Man, I was a really good pastor when I was young and energetic. Um, but now I'm older and there's younger and more energetic pastors and they're really cool. What have I st- still got left to give? Like what is going to merit goodness to me? What is going to make me feel like I'm worthy? Like we, we continue in these cycles through our life of wanting to perform so that we can feel established or okay or accepted. And God is saying to us this whole time, no. I set this up with my son dying for your sins that you could come to me by faith. I don't want your performance. I'm your father. My kids can come to me with their stuff and I'm going to affirm them for it. Like, great job. But don't think that my love and our relationship was just bought by that. I loved you before you entered that competition. I loved you before I got your report card. There is nothing you can do, Romans, that would separate you from my love. Nothing on earth or in heaven that could remove you from my presence where I would no longer accept you. So I want to roll through one last story here. This is the story that Jasper read. It's out of Mark. And Jesus is in this house, and this house is so crowded. I mean, tiny house in Palestine, uh, the old houses, you can still see examples of them. They're very tiny. It is packed. Everyone that can fit into this house has fit into this house. And there are people now lining around the door and probably around the walls trying to listen in, trying to be a part of this gathering because Jesus, this man of God, this healer is there. And these, these, these guys grab their friend who's a paralytic and the cots in those days would be like a cot um, roughly the size of a person with like a sheep skin on it. So you could easily grab it by the four corners if you want, like a, like a cot today would be, or like an ambulance gurney, like the top size of that. You could easily grab four corners and carry it. And they carry this man on his cot to this house, and they can't work their way in through a person. There's no priest, there's no celebrity that they're going to go to and say, because of you, can you mediate to Jesus for us? They don't do that. They don't work to the power structure that says somehow we can push aside people that are less worthy or appeal to some kind of a club. They don't do that. They actually force their way onto the roof. The roof is made, we've got pictures of what a roof would be like, Um, but the roof is this dried clay, if you will, that has to be rolled out periodically. It cracks in the summer. You have to put mud on it again uh, in the fall to fill in the cracks. Ironically, you'll actually get grass in the spring that will grow on a roof like this. So the next picture is, is late summer when that grass is withered. But you've got this dried um, mud, if you will, over the top of sticks 
that hold it up on beams that give it support. And these guys go up onto the roof and they tear it apart, says Mark. They tear open that roof, creating a hole. The words are digging through it, digging through that roof. They now lower the man on a mat um, and they put him right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at it and says, your sins are forgiven. The brokenness of his life that he brought to Jesus worked salvation for his soul. You see, whether it's spiritual or material, it's still brokenness. And when we come to Jesus, when we come to God in faith with our brokenness, and we come so passionately that we're willing to tear through the roof. We're just simply saying there's nothing else that's going to work. Nothing else will save me. Even if my circumstances don't change, I need to know that we're good. I need to not have this fog here. I need to touch you, Lord. And if I do that, the crazy thing is you're going to accept me, not just in my broken body, but in my broken spirit. And you're going to say that I'm forgiven? Did I have relationship in that nakedness in coming to you in faith that we now are together? That I'm established? It's this crazy thing. And so they argue with them. Whoa, 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 Jesus, says the kind of priests of the day. Because Jesus is stepping on their territory by forgiving sins. Do you really have that kind of authority? And Jesus says, is it easier to say to the man, pick up your mat and walk, or that your sins are forgiven? But I'll do both. And he says to them that their faith had healed this person. Not only the faith of the man, but the four people that were carrying him in. You can read this story in Luke as well. Um, got another quote from Luther. Um, and it's one of my favorite ones. But it says this, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all of his cardinals because I have within me the great Pope, the self. When we come without performance, it means we also come without expectations. We don't come manipulatively. We come as the paralytic. We come as the friend who is desperate to help the friend. We come simply to connect, to be with, and to know that we are justified, to know that we are accepted, to know that we're good enough, to know that we're worthy, to know that we're loved. And we have to understand that we can manipulate that, that we can try and make it about our own expectations, that somehow I'm gonna leverage Jesus for something else. And Jesus says, look, when you get to heaven, you're gonna have the houses or the rewards that you deserve, but don't come asking me for rewards now. You come because it's the right thing to do, because you know who I am, that you see the Father through me, that you know that in me you come to connect with the Father and that you start there in faith, not knowing where it's gonna go next. We come naked, which is awkward. We also come empty-handed, which means no expectations. And I think this is the hardest thing, and I, I, I'm not gonna get to it, and I had cool graphs and, and all sorts of other things about, about the modern world. Um, but with the explosion of media and technology and possibility and different career uh, types and tra transportation. We can dream of so many things. We can have so many expectations. We can come to Christ with so much that we're holding on to and saying, you have to do this for me if I'm going to follow you. Or I really only want to step into this 
if I know you're going to address this area of my life that I'm demanding be addressed. Because if you're not going to address it, well, then I'm going to go take and do it some other way. So we come naked, we come empty-handed, we burst through the ceiling so that mud and dust is falling on the heads of the rich people and, and the people that knew when to show up so that they could be next to Jesus. And they're so frustrated with, with us because we're this weird kind of Christian that is so inconvenient and makes the, the, the room feel so awkward. And Jesus looks at us with dust in the air and dust in his hair and says, now that's the kind of faith that I want. Do it again, says Jesus. Break through the ceiling again, says Jesus. Come to me again, says Jesus. Take up your mat and walk and your sins are forgiven because this is faith. Not faith that's so big, but faith that's so desperate. Faith that just starts as a flame and can grow. Faith that I think you and I can relate to. Faith that's normal and messy and dirty and earthy, but real and fits our life experiences. Faith that can just say, God, make my feet different so that at least I'll be agile enough to deal with the trials in my life and to walk worthy. We're gonna come and we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate the fact that Jesus, that his body was broken, that he would take the first step and initiate relationship with us so that the work is not on us. The response in faith is on us. So don't pray right before we do this and cleanse yourself up like I used to do in the Baptist churches. Um, you are dirty. This is where you're cleansed. Don't try and make yourself good enough so that you can come and do the spiritual act. You come knowing that you're not good enough, but that you're loved all the same. And come with others to the left and to the right of you that are also sinners, but that know Christ through faith alone. Don't try and figure out which one's the worst sinner on the left or the right. Just know that we are all falling short of the glory of God, but we all have access, not through priests or powers or our performance. We all have access through the Son of God who we come to in faith. Father, grow our faith. Bless this community. Shape our feet. Grow our maturity. Um, give us peace. In Jesus' name.